at the healing in Simon's house. Luke chapter 4, verses 33 to 44. We will be at that point of history, brethren and sisters, where our Lord will deliver what has been commonly styled the Sermon on the Mount. don't like that word sermon myself. It's just got connotations. Or perhaps there's nothing wrong with the word itself, but just got those connotations which send a bit of a shiver up your spine. I rather think they like to call it a discourse on the mountain. But just think about that. But the things we're going to talk about this evening will lead up to that point. And God willing, it will be a very great pleasure a fortnight hence, if we're still here, brothers and sisters, to commence a consideration of what must surely be the greatest speech of all history. Not only so, brethren and sisters, but it's the speech of the Lord Jesus Christ in which he epitomizes everything he stood for. Now you think about that, because he's going to be your judge and my judge. And in the fifth and the sixth and the seventh chapters of Matthew, I don't believe you will find anywhere a teaching that's not incorporated in those three chapters. Obviously and deliberately, the Lord took that opportunity to gather together all that was critical to you, you and I as far as our life and the truth is concerned. And the discourse on the mount, brothers and sisters, can be a very highly embarrassing piece of literature to read when it's viewed from the viewpoint of our human failings. But that is our judge, or he is our judge, and that will be the basis of our judgment. And I would like to impress all of you with that, because it's a grand opportunity to get ready to consider that together. We hope to consider it not so much in all the massive detail, but I'm just having a look at that this week in preparation to getting down to it myself, and I've never done the study before. The very simplicity of that record struck me with a tremendous amount of force. And when I looked at some of the notes that have been written, and the way that, that is broken up into, into great detail, I really feel, brethren and sisters, it's much more simpler than that, but it's very, very pointed, and that's the whole thing about it. It's not meant to be protracted and detailed. It's very pointed and simple. And I think we're going to learn a lot out of that, that wonderful discourse. And just... Again, I'd like to just say this, that as we consider this evening, these are the events that led up to the Lord going up into that mountain, getting set, and speaking to the multitude. Now, tonight we want to talk about the miracles in Simon's house, and a lot of the miracles that the Lord performed at Capernaum, which are recorded in that short section in Luke and in the first chapter of Mark. When we first, when we go back to Mark, you might like to slip a bit of paper in there because the records comparable one to the other, brothers and sisters, help one another. What one says, the other one doesn't, and, and vice versa. And by comparing the two of them, you always get a, a, a composite picture of any incident. But there is a very interesting contrast in miracles. Now, let's get let's set the scene. And by the way, here's a good exercise for you. It is, it's not very hard to do this. Just draw a map of Israel. You could almost draw one without a, without a tracing paper now. You'd know the land that well. you just come down to Galilee, the Dead Sea, and so on. Get yourself a map of Israel, and then, or, and then get it photostatted or something, or do one each week. And have a few blank co copies of the map of Israel. And then you go come to the class, just trace where he's going and what he's doing. And it's just a, a, another way of, of making the geographical setting fix in your mind. I've done that for myself, and I've got 44 maps I've drawn up, and I've got all mine already done for the purpose of the class, but I have 44 maps 
which I've got now in a folder home, which I've traced the life of the Lord. So, and I'll just put a little section on each one. I don't fill one up with a whole lot that's going to confuse me. I'll just do a, a little section on the next map I use. No matter how many maps you use, and you put them in a folder, and follow carefully the journeys of our Lord. And if you would have done that to this point, you would know that he's up there on the north-western corner of the lake at Capernaum. He'd gone into that synagogue, and he'd healed that demented man who shrieked out, breaking the spell of that marvellous discourse which he was delivering to them in the synagogue at Capernaum. And the last scene we, we saw of our Lord on that occasion was when that madman was thrown in the middle of that synagogue. And there was death, deathly silence, and the man stood up, and it was obvious to everyone that he'd come to his senses. And a very dramatic moment, and Mark makes the point, and we'll turn to Mark now, brethren and sisters, it is Mark that says this that Luke doesn't say. He just uses a, a one word there that Luke doesn't say, but it's a very expressive word. So in Mark chapter 1 and verse 23, and there was, and there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And you will remember the whole thrust of that miracle we learnt last time was to teach the Jewish people that there was madness in Israel, yes, but there was more madness in their synagogue. Now you, you note that carefully because you know what, brethren and sisters, we're going to finish on that exactly that note this evening. You, you, you wouldn't believe how this comes around a full circle. And that's where we're going to finish again being told that there's madness in their synagogue. So you see, the miracles had a purpose behind them. They just weren't performed to help people. There was a purpose behind the miracles. Now, in order that we might appreciate the purpose behind the miracles, what happens in the in Luke's gospel here, in Luke's record, we read that as a result of that miracle in curing the madman in verse 37, that the fame of him went out into every place of the country around about. And he arose out of the synagogue and entered into Simon's house. And what Luke is trying to tell us, that as that meeting broke up in the synagogue, he left that synagogue and went straight into Simon's house and people went everywhere. They come flying out of that synagogue and look, within a matter of moments, brethren and sisters, like a bushfire, his fame had spread around the district. We're going to see what happened in a few moments. But it didn't take long for that to take fire and for people to be brought to that house. And just remember this, bearing in mind what we've learned so far, the Lord has only just landed in Capernaum and already his fame is going out like lightning throughout that district. But as for him, he rises up and he enters into Simon's house. And another miracle is performed. The first two actually that, that are recorded by Mark. And what are the first two miracles that Mark records? The healing of that demoniac in that synagogue and the healing of Simon's mother-in-law in that house. And the purpose, I believe, behind the two miracles was, brethren and sisters, there was madness among the intelligentsia of Israel, and there was sickness in the house of Israel. One needed power and authority, the other one needed compassion and help. But whether it was Simon's house, or whether it was that synagogue, there was madness, and there was sickness in the nation of Israel. Now I want to just show you the contrast in those two miracles. And when you see this, brothers and sisters, I think you'll see that they're, they're deliberately put together in the record. Look at the contrast in those two miracles. 
On this side, we have the demoniac in the synagogue. On the left side, we've got Simon's mother-in-law. Well, there was intellectual sickness in the synagogue. He was mad. But there was bodily sickness in that house. It was in their synagogue, and it was in Simon's house. In other words, brethren and sisters, they were detached from the Lord, but these were, they were a bit different, they were closer to him. In the case of the demoniac, he was a man, and a man of the scripture stands for the intelligence, and the, and the men of Israel were mad, because they didn't understand the things that were being done in Jesus Christ our Lord. But in this case, it was his wife's mother. There was a touch of humanity here, brethren and sisters. In the synagogue, they wanted nothing to do with him. What have we to do with thee, the man would say. Not, of course, understanding what he said, but in the record, he represents the voice of Israel. We've got nothing in common with you. That was where their intellectual madness had got them. But in the house, they besought him for her. as a different attitude. He rebuked that madness. But he took her by the hand and lifted her up, says Mark. Luke doesn't say that, by the way. And as far as the madness was concerned, the end of that miracle sees him thrown down in the midst of the people. Thrown into the midst of them. At the end of this miracle, she ministers unto them. And I believe what is being set before us in those two miracles, brethren and sisters, is that there was in Israel, as I've said, mental and bodily sickness. There was mental and moral sickness, if you like. They were sick from the crown of their head to the bottom of their feet. But there were some that wanted him and there were some that didn't want him. And those who didn't want him were sick in the mind. And those who needed our Lord and knew their need were those who were morally steeped in sin and saw their wretched state and reached out for compassion. And you find the Lord operating differently in those two cases, rebuking the one and, and helping the other by lifting him up with the hand and so on. And it's no coincidence, I believe, to see those two miracles set out like that, so contrasted. Who could ever see such a contrast in two miracles that followed one upon another on the Lord's first day in Capernaum? And of course, as a result of his first miracle, his fame is spreading everywhere. Now we learn, brethren and sisters, from the first Corinthians 9 and verse 5 about Peter's wife. It's his wife's mother that is sick. Roman Catholics say, of course, that Peter was the first pope. He must have been, because I've seen the change, the actual change they brought him to Rome. I think they were made about 1963 or something. But at any rate, the Catholics say that he was the, the first pope. That is absolute nonsense, because it, it, of course, as they maintain, that the pope maintains a celibate life. He does not marry. Well, Peter certainly married, and he not only married, but in the first Corinthians 9 and verse 5, we read that his wife went on tour with him. As Paul says, have we, that is Barnabas and I, not authority to lead about a sister, a wife, as well as other apostles, and as the brethren of the Lord, and as Cephas, or Peter? So we learn from that record, brethren and sisters, that Peter's wife went on tour with him. Now why do I mention this? Well, it's pretty obvious, isn't it, that a woman who would travel with her husband in the circumstances in which Peter travelled, brethren and sisters, would have to have a lot of determination a lot of faith and a great love of the truth. Not a lot is said. Matter of fact, it's about all that's said about Peter's wife. But the fact 
that they were led about, as the Apostle said. They were led about. Indicates, brethren and sisters, it was not easy. They were led about. And when these brethren went on tour, they didn't go on a sort of a semi-preaching tour and a, and, a, and a sightseeing tour. They went into a hostile world. And Peter's wife was led about with him. And I believe that that miracle played a very great part in that woman's life. It was her mother. And no doubt, brethren and sisters, the Lord, by performing that wonderful miracle on that occasion, saving her mother, which was obviously dying from a fever that she's not getting over, getting worse and worse, and bringing her mother back to health again so that she could immediately administer unto them, would have had a profound effect upon that woman. And she doubtless would have followed her husband, being led out all over a hostile world, gladly so, to hear her husband set before the world the, the saving name of Jesus Christ, her Lord, for whom she could thank from the bottom of her heart for the help, on that occasion at least, of her own mother. Now it's also interesting to note this in this miracle. There were at least nine people in that house. You have a look at Mark chapter 1 again. Mark tells us a bit more of the detail of what went on in there. There were at least seven people in that house, brethren and sisters, and in Mark chapter 1 and verse 29... We read, and forthwith, when they were come out of the synagogue, they entered into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now you add them up. There was Simon and Andrew, James and John, that's four. There was Peter's wife, that's five. His mother-in-law, that's six. And the Lord, that's seven. And how many times do we find that cropping up in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ? Seven of them gathered there, as there were seven of them, I believe, at the wedding in Cana of Galilee. And here we have seven people in that house. And what is the problem in that house, brethren and sisters? The problem in that house, as Luke records it, in verse 38, was a great fever. That's the problem. A great fever. And as, of course, Mark says, he merely says, it's a fever. But because Luke, being a physician, brethren and sisters, he saw the seriousness of that fever. To him it was not no just ordinary fever, it was a great fever. Now there were seven people in there, and the woman who would have been the oldest person in that house, who would have obviously been the one to whom they would all respect and, and lean to in times of crisis, she ministered unto them. She was an active person, but she's prostrate with a great fever. Now, why would we emphasize that? Because, brethren and sisters, on the two separate occasions when that fever is mentioned in the Old Testament scriptures, the only time it's mentioned, it's mentioned in relation to Israel breaking God's covenant. Now, you have a look at these two references. Leviticus 26. Now, anybody who knows anything about Leviticus will immediately know when you talk about the 26th chapter of Leviticus, you're talking about the covenant, the covenant chapter, which repeatedly says over and over and over again in this chapter, I don't know how many times, I will punish you seven times for your sin. You get it in verse 18 and then you can take it from there. It appears several times throughout that chapter. I will punish you seven times for your sin. Why? Because in verse 15, if ye despise my statutes, or if your soul abhor my judgments, so that ye will not do all my commandments, but that ye break my covenant. 
and the covenant number as witnessed by the, the law of Moses in its cycles of seven was obviously seven. And they broke God's covenant, I will punish you seven times for your sin. There were seven people in that house, brethren and sisters, and in the next verse in Leviticus we read, I will do this, I will also this, do this unto you, I will even appoint over you terror, consumption, and the burning ague that shall consume the eyes and cause sorrow of my heart, and you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. The burning ague. To be set on fire is exactly the meaning of the Greek word in Luke. She had a great fever. She was set on fire. The woman was hot. A burning fever. And there were seven people in that house. And there was the house of Israel, brothers and sisters, in desperate need because they had broken that covenant. And if there was intellectual stupidity in that synagogue, there was certainly a moral disease in that house which represented the whole nation. And I'll show you in a moment. There's a purpose in this. Luke and Mark seemingly recording a very busy day of our Lord for merely just as eyewitness account of what he did didn't do that, brethren and sisters. They are quite deliberate in what they record. And I'm going to show you as we go through this, this little section that there is a deliberate attempt to show us that there's moral and intellectual sickness in that nation. And so in Simon's house, there's a woman with a burning fever. Now where's the other reference? The 28th chapter of Deuteronomy. And doesn't that ring a bell? And here is a chapter, if ever there was one, where again, of course, the point is breaking that covenant. This is the great chapter, of course, the curses which would come upon the nation if they broke the covenant. And verse 22, the Lord shall smite thee with a consumption and with a fever and with inflammation and with an extreme burning and with a sword, and with blasting, and with mildew, and they shall pursue thee until thou perish. And there she was, in Luke's term, with a great fever, set ablaze, set on fire, suffering the very illness, one of the illnesses, one of the chief illnesses, mentioned in the context of those two remarkable chapters as being a punishment for breaking that covenant. Now I find that very interesting, brethren and sisters. Now coming back then, to that chapter in Luke. See what the Lord does. In the verse 38 in Luke 4, we read that they besought him for her. There was a measure of faith in that house, brethren and sisters. Nobody in that synagogue was beseeching it. Nobody there was beseeching the Lord for that poor madman. Nobody stood up and said, Lord, have compassion on him. But here they do. There's compassion in this house. There's a, there's a basis upon which our Lord can work here. There are people who are concerned for other people. They're going to learn lessons. And though they did represent Israel in their waywardness, as all that nation was at that moment, even his disciples were not in, in really believing in all that the Lord taught, brethren and sisters. Not even them. The Lord was nonetheless going to be compassionate upon those who besought him in order that they may be changed. And what did he do? Look at the way Luke records it. He stood over her and rebuked the fever. You know, that's an interesting term. He stood over her. If you look at the way in which the Greek word is used, you'll find that's the general sense of its usage, to stand up. But you see, the word really is a belligerent word. 
and it is rendered by the word in, in, a, in the 17th chapter of Acts and at verse 5 by the word assaulted. They assaulted the house of Jason. They stood over it. And you can see the Lord going across that bed, brothers and sisters, and drawing to his full height, stood over that woman as if there was a great need to bring to bear belligerency against that disease. And he rebuked that disease. Now we know, of course, that because of the general usage of the Greek language, which had permeated society, that classical language which was built up from mythology, whereas words came out of myths which gave the word meaning, so that when people expressed themselves in those terms, the myth itself was like a dictionary of the meaning of the word. And therefore, casting out these demons, as it were, simply to us, curing sickness, was to them casting out demons. Not that everyone believed that, but that was the common parlance of the day. And the Lord striding over there, standing by that woman, you would think, well, in this particular instance, a, a, an elderly lady, the mother-in-law of Simon, he would be, he'd go about very gentle. But no, he goes over there and stands up there and stood over that woman and rebuked that illness. Why would he do that, brother and sister? Because you see, sin and sickness are connected, aren't they? You've got them connected in Psalm 103. There is a, is a relationship, a very real relationship between sin and sickness. Not that every sickness is a result of a particular sin, but every sickness is a result of the original sin. No doubt about that, whatever. That's how it came about. And so in Psalm 103, that connection is spelt out. Where in a parallelism, the psalm says this, Psalm 103, verses 3 and 4, who forgiveth all thine iniquities, who healeth all thy diseases, who redeemeth thy life from destruction, who crowneth thee with loving kindnesses and tender mercies. And so the expression, who forgiveth all thine iniquities, who healeth all thy diseases. There is a connection between disease and death. And, and sin, rather, as we so surely know. Adam transgressed in the Garden of Eden, brethren and sisters. And despite what that point of that document said, there was decidedly a change in the condition of that nature. It was no longer very good. Sin had caused a change. Sin had brought about a change in the condition of the nature that God had made. There was an intrusion in God's world. There was an imbalance in what God created, brethren and sisters. And from a man being very good, he now finds himself evil continually. And alongside of his moral ills, he finds himself now subject to weakness, to disease, to infection, to all sorts of ailments and maladies, which go hand in glove with his crime. Sin and sickness. And when the Lord walked across that poor lady, and she obviously was no great sinner because she ministered to all of them and it was obviously loved by all of them. They wouldn't have besought him for it if she wasn't. She wouldn't have been seen as a great sinner above all other sinners, brethren and sisters. But there was the problem. And when the Lord went over and stood over the top of her, there was a man, brethren and sisters, that was, didn't come just to heal sickness itself. He came to stand up and front up to the cause of it all. That's why he came. And I believe that was the impression the Lord was leaving everywhere he went. 
He was leaving that impression. He might not have healed every single person in Israel, and that was not his purpose. But the people that he did heal, he left an indelible impression that he was going to go one day and confront the very cause of that, of that disease. He was going to stand up to it. And in the end, stand up to it he did. And conquered it, brothers and sisters. And when he comes, for us, we hope, he will turn the tide of our humanity and we will have perfect health because he stood over that illness. That's what he did. Now, isn't it strange that Luke uses all the belligerent terms, but Mark doesn't. When you come back to Mark, he puts all the compassionate terms into this miracle. And, and, you know, one uses one set of terms and the other one the other, and they are, of course, compatible and yet opposite. Until we read in Mark chapter 1 and verse 31, that instead of standing over Simon's wife's mother and rebuking the fever, we read he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up and immediately the fever left her and she ministered unto that. That is the first occurrence in any gospel record of Jesus lifting someone up. The first occurrence of lifting someone up. You know the prophet Isaiah, brethren and sisters, had this to say about the nation. He had this to say about the nation of Israel. He says, there is none among her sons that can take it by the hand. He said that in the 51st chapter of Isaiah. There is none among her sons that can take it by the hand. So that all the sons of Israel, all the rabbis that were ever produced, and all the sons that they may have had and took upon themselves the robes of office, none could take Israel by the hand. There was none that could lift that nation out of its flower of despond and despair. But he did. And that poor lady there, lying as she was on that bed sick, represented to all of them that nation in the state that it was in. And he went over and he took her by the hand and lifted her up and immediately the fever left her. Now, they tell me, and I have to rely on the experts, that if you've had a fever, even if it left you immediately, you would be for several hours, at least maybe some days, very, very weak. You would have no physical powers. You would be very, very weak for many hours after a fever. That woman rose straight off that bed and was busy in that house. It wasn't just simply, brethren and sisters, that the fever subsided. She got off of that bed and was hale and hearty and active immediately. Now they reckon, I've been reading up on this and they say that there's, in the medical records that nobody comes out of a fever of, of, a, of extreme fever like that. If you've had malarial fever, for example, even when people get over the actual fever itself, they are weak for days on end. But this woman got out of that bed and she was busy and active in that house. The Lord of life had obviously been at work there, brethren and sisters. So there we have the miracle in Simon's house, contrasted to that one in the synagogue. Israel and their intellectual and moral maladies that had overtaken them. When we come back to Luke now, we'll see what happened next. You know, I'd like to, and I hope you do too, that as we go through these stories, to make a, a word picture of what's happening. Now, this is what's happening. Verse 40. Now, when the sun was setting, all they that had any sick 
with many diseases, brought them unto him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. Now, you, you, you just look. There's one verse of scripture, brethren and sisters. Now, you picture the scene. Now, you, you just imagine how our Lord would have been after this. When the sun was setting. Now, we already read in verse 37, his fame was spreading abroad. Now, he'd only come out of that synagogue. But this was still day one. The sun is going down, but that day he'd been in the synagogue in the morning, he'd been in Simon's house perhaps for the afternoon. Where's everyone going? Why, if his fame was spreading so quickly, why weren't they back quickly? You know why? It's the Sabbath. It's the Sabbath. And you know, look, there I believe is an epitome of Israel's attitude. Now, it wasn't just the sick that were coming. No, it was all they that had any sick. There were people who had people in their homes for whom they were caring for so that the person themselves would have been worn out with fatigue with the sick in their house. The sick themselves would have been worn out with their sickness. But nobody's going to come until the Sabbath concludes. So they've got to wait till the sun was setting. Because it's going out of the sun, the Sabbath ended. Because the Pharisees would be they'd be saying, you're not allowed to carry your bed on the Sabbath day. Carving critics with hearts like steel and stone. So nobody moves until the sun goes down. But now, brethren and sisters, we've got a picture of the sun going down. And there's not a few people there. There's not a few. There was many. But let Mark tell us how many were there, brethren and sisters. Come back to Mark's record. You just let Mark tell, tell us how many were there. Verse 32 and 33. And at even, when the sun did set, they brought unto him all that were diseased, and then that were possessed with devils, and all the city was gathered together at the door. Together at the door. All the city gathered together at the door. Now, if we can trust the records, the contemporary records, and some of the historians that have searched in brethren and sisters, that would represent something like 20,000 people. And the sun's going down. Now, can you get the scene? Can you see the scene? You know, in these gospel records, brethren and sisters, you've got to have a, a vivid imagination, but it doesn't have to run right. You've just got to look at those words and create in your mind the picture. Now, you have to create that picture. Out of the synagogue, off go everyone, roaring off in all directions. In no time, the Lord's fame is around that district. Everyone's longing to get there, but no one's going to move until the sun goes down. In the meantime, he's in Simon's house, handling another miracle, vastly different than the first one. Now, just as the sun sets, and almost like the clock striking the Sabbath is over, they come from every direction. Now, here we've got thousands of people with every conceivable disease, they're all clamoring to be healed and it's late. What would you do? Well, I'd take in the whole scene. I'd think, wow, have a look at this. And Luke and Mark tell us the shrieks of the madmen are coming from the crowd. We know thou art, thou art the Christ. And the poor people are like, keep quiet, keep quiet. And there'd be shrieks from here and shrieks over there of madmen. Everyone trying to quieten them down. And the groans of the sick. Oh, don't move me that way. Oh, God, don't move me this way. People being carried. People on the point of death. Thousands of them. And the sun's going down. Now, what would you do? 
Well, if we had God's power, illimitable, brothers and sisters, we would have healed them wholesale. Look what Luke says, verse 40. Now, when the sun was setting, all they that had any sick with many diseases brought them unto him, and he laid his hands on every one of them. Now, you just take that in. He laid his hands on every one of them. And you can well and truly imagine, brothers and sisters, that long after dark, almost by starlight, our Lord is working in that multitude and laying his hands on every one of them. I mentioned Isaiah 1 in passing. You know, Isaiah spelled out the spiritual condition of this nation in the symbology of sickness. This was the condition the Lord found his nation in. He was healing literal sicknesses, but they were indicative of this sickness, brethren and sisters. And this is what was happening here. And our Lord would understand this. And in Isaiah 1, verse 4, Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers, children that are corrupted, they have forsaken Yahweh, they have provoked the Holy One of Israel unto anger, they have gone away backward. Why should you be stricken any more? Ye will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick, the whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot, even under the head, there is no soundness in them, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores that have not been closed, neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment. And there they were, the whole bang lot of them. The whole city's there at that door. And anyone who could get their sick folk there had them there. And the Lord would look out of that nation and he would say, Ah, a sinful nation. Later on he was to come back to Capernaum, brethren and sisters, and he was to blast that city with their unbelief. For all the mighty works that had been done on that city, he stood over that city and breathed flames of anger over that city, and he would have looked at that crowd and thought, yeah. They want one thing, laden with iniquity, they want one thing, they want healing. But the compassionate nature of our Lord was such, brethren and sisters, that he knew that that ignorance was there because... They had been blinded by the madness in that synagogue. And all those moral ills of which these physical sicknesses were emblematic were imposed upon them by the ignorance that they were taught. Now there was an opportunity for them to learn something else. They didn't learn it, but that was their fault. But here was their opportunity. And do you know that when you look at the record of Mark, of Luke, and of Matthew, which record these, this incident, all those three writers categorized the sicknesses in that crowd as being possessed with devils and divers' diseases. Mind and body. They all do it that way, a lot of them. They categorize those, those illnesses in those two categories. categories. Sick in mind and sick in body. And when you've got corruption in mind, brothers and sisters, you've got corruption in doctrine. That's the lesson that's being taught here. And if there's insanity in the synagogue, there's, there's, there's illness among the people. And they categorized that people in those two categories. And the Lord went around and laid his hands on every one of them. Now that's a remarkable, I find that an incredible statement. 
When you make a word picture of what that means. And he healed them all. So he didn't stop halfway. He didn't say, well, it's late. The sun's gone down. We've got to get to bed. He went on and on and on and on until there wasn't one single person in Capernaum sick. It was, in every sense of the word, the house of comfort. He healed them all. And he did it individually. Now, let's just ponder this. Time and again, we have this saying in the Gospel record. According to your faith, be it unto you. In other words, anyone who was a recipient of God's healing power had to have faith to have that power. We know that. But do you realise, brethren and sisters, that you've got the other statement in the 17th chapter of Matthew, we won't turn it up now, when the disciples couldn't heal a man's lunatic son, they said to the Lord, why can't we heal him? Oh, he said, look, that boy is so ill. He, he's so bad a case that only by prayer and fasting can that sort go out. You see, brethren and sisters, that's telling us very plainly that every miracle performed required faith on the part of the healer. Never mind the recipient. And when the disciples were confronted with a lunatic boy, so mad, so demented in his mind and twisted in his countenance that their hearts shrank within them, they couldn't heal him because they were lacking in faith. But the Lord says you need to pray and you need a bit of self-denial in prayer. You need to agonise in prayer. You need to go without in life. You need to get down on your knees and implore your Heavenly Father to help you before you can help them. And he healed them all and he laid his hands on every single one of them. And that tells me that, brethren and sisters, that when that crowd had finally gone away with not a single person in Capernaum ill, our Lord would have been physically exhausted when that was over by the powers of concentration. And imagine what he would have found among that crowd. Imagine the faith that would have been necessary on, that, on the part of our Lord who had to be the channel of such power to give to those people as he did. Now, it's what a remarkable thing. It is remarkable that in this incident, Matthew sees the fulfillment of Isaiah. Now, you have a look what he says. Back in Matthew chapter 8, it's Matthew who sees in this very incident that we're looking at now a fulfillment of Isaiah 53 and verse 4. You follow the context, you'll see in from verse 14 of Matthew 8 that there we have the healing of Peter's wife's mother. Verse 16, when the even was come, they brought unto him many that was possessed with devils, and he cast out the spirits with his word and, and healed all that was sick, you see, mind and body, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, himself, himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. Now I don't believe we've got a record anywhere in the Gospels quite like this one as far as miracles concerned. Here we seem to have a deliberate attempt by our Lord at wholesale healing one after the other in order that he might make an initial impression at Capernaum in Galilee. But going around, brothers and sisters, positively laying his hands on every single one of them, Matthew says, he took on himself our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. It wasn't just that he was healing and healing and finding a very great pleasure in doing that and, and free and 
easy like a breeze, just going through and be healed, be healed. No, brethren and sisters, there'd have been powers of concentration. He would have placed his hands on the poor wretch that was suffering. He would have felt for that person. That feeling of our Lord would have been translated to prayer to his heavenly Father, deep and abiding concentration on behalf of his God that he might help that person. He took his sickness. And Matthew sees in that a fulfillment of Isaiah 53. Yet when we read Isaiah 53, we read the prophet as he's talking about morality or immorality. And he is. But again, you've got to have your connection. They are interrelated. Now here's an interesting thing. When Matthew quotes Isaiah 53, I want you to look at the words that he used, brethren and sisters. Look how they're used. Now, Isaiah said, this is the reference that Matthew quotes, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Matthew says, he took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. Now when you look at the, the Hebrew and the Greek words, and you list them up there, you'll see that Matthew has inverted the order. See, born means to be lifted up, which is compared to that word. Grief means to be rubbed together and worn out, which is like having a disease or a sickness. Carried means to be burdened or to catch hold of, to take a burden. Sorrows means to be in pain and anguish or to have an infirmity or a weakness. So that really what Matthew has done has inverted the order. And he sees in that a fulfilment of Isaiah's prophecy. And he's right, because that's the right order. That's the right order. Because you see, Jesus took hold of our weakness that in the end, he might lift us above our disease. Matthew's got it right. The prophet's got it the other way around. Because the prophet searched what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them when it spoke of the suffering and the glory that was followed. Now Isaiah's got it that way. But Matthew's got it that way. And he says, thus it was fulfilled. And whatever Isaiah might have been talking about, here's the fulfilment. And you know, brothers and sisters, just to show you the proof of that, that word to catch hold is the same word in Hebrews chapter 2 when it says, he took not hold of the seed of Abraham, rather on angels, but he took hold of the seed of Abraham. He caught hold of it. That like his brethren were partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself caught a burden. He grabbed hold of a burden, which was our anguish and weakness, that he might lift us up above it and get rid of the, of the disease of mortality that drags everyone to the ground. And Matthew saw in that incident a fulfilment of that remarkable prophecy. I think that's very interesting. Now coming back to Luke's record again, you'll notice in this record, brethren and sisters, that they, they mention the, of these demons that were calling out again. Verse 41 mentions them. And demons also came out of many, crying out and saying, Thou art the Christ, the Son of God. And he, rebuking them, suffered them not to speak, for they knew that he was Christ. And Mark says the same thing. They knew he was Christ. Now, you know, many have pondered that, and they thought, now, how on earth could they know? Well, obviously, brethren and sisters, the knowledge that those demons, those poor, demented people had, was not spiritual knowledge. It wasn't a knowledge that could generate faith. Nothing could be generated of value in a mind like that. And Jesus was not on any occasion prepared to accept 
the accolades from those people that he was the Christ, the Son of God, or the Holy One. He wasn't prepared to accept that because in those sort of people it is unacceptable. But I do believe that they knew. Doesn't James say in his epistles that devils believe and tremble? And those poor wretches were frightened out of their wits in their demented state of mind because they believed. And I believe that is deliberately said to show us just how absolutely insane Israel were. But people with their debilities could at least grasp something of the miracles of our Lord that no one else but the Son of God could do that when people with their full faculties said we want nothing to do with you. And I believe that that in the record being stated by all the gospel writers impressing us with the fact that Israel are really mad when mad people can at least come to those conclusions on the basis, the sight of their eyes, of what they can see when others rejected that. The very fact, of course, that that was unacceptable and demented people is proven by the fact that that's Peter's confession. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Not acceptable in that man, but most acceptable in Peter. Blessed art thou, Simon, son of Jonah, said the Lord, when Peter made that confession. Now, brethren and sisters, our word picture. Now, brethren and sisters, our word picture. See what it does for you? What happened next? Verse 42. When it was day. When it was day, he departed and went into a desert place. Now, we don't get the full picture. Come back to Mark. Mark gives us the full picture, brethren and sisters. Mark puts it in much more detail. Verse 35. And in in the morning, Mark chapter 1 and verse 35, and in the morning, rising up a great while before day, he went out and departed into a solitary place and there prayed. So Mark is a little bit more specific as to what hour it was and he tells us the purpose the Lord went out there. He went out to pray. Now Mark says, a great while before day. Do you know what the literal Greek says? While it was yet deep night. Now when Luke says when it was day, what he means of course, the Jewish day started the night before. He's not saying the Lord went out in the day, because he didn't. He went out, brothers and sisters, in the deep night. What for? To pray. Why would he do that? Because he's been in the midst of thousands of people. The whole region is honeycombed with people. It's like an ant's nest. He can't move. So he's got to get out in the solitude to pray. But look what's happened that day. He's been to the synagogue in the morning. There would have been an intense feeling in that synagogue. Nervous tension there would have been at its height. There was a dramatic incident of the healing of a, of a demoniac, which would have, of course, brought a great deal of attention on our Lord. He goes into Simon's house, witnesses there the illness of a, of a loved one, and has to heal that person to bring joy to that house. He comes out, brothers and sisters, to find the whole city there. And one by one, by one, by one, thousands of them, he goes around healing them one after another, extending himself over and over again, pouring out the faith that was pent up, uh, up in him because of his, of his attitude of mind, his connection with the Father, and when he had finished, there's not one single person that's 
rest that's not that is not healthy. And our Lord is exhausted. And everyone goes to bed. And in the middle of the night, when it was yet deep night, he sought refreshment in prayer. When every other sleepy head sought refreshment in sleep. That's the example of Jesus Christ, our Lord, brethren and sisters. And it wasn't just done once or twice. It was a habit. It's recorded in Luke 5.16, Luke 6 and 12, and on and on and on through the record. But he did that as a matter of habit. He never slept that night at all. Because they found him next morning. They went out and looked for him. He didn't get a wink of sleep. At all. Think of the previous day that he spent. And this is only day one in Galilee. That's only day one. You make a mental picture of that in your mind, brothers and sisters. You know, the Apostle Paul told the Colossians to stay awake in prayer. To stay awake in prayer. You know how difficult that is. If you don't, then you try this. Our brother John will, will conclude this meeting with prayer. Try following carefully every syllable he says, taking that into your own heart and framing that as your own thought towards the Father. Try doing that through John's prayer. And it'll be a short because he's only a learner. And then you try doing that, every prayer that's made from this platform, you try in the next few meetings, or if you should try all the time, but you try it all the time. You try and take every single syllable of what somebody's saying up here in prayer and getting that into your head, in your heart, and to the Father, and keep up with them while they're praying. And you see how difficult that is. And then think to yourself, you've got someone praying for you. And you only ask for that afternoon. You try and comprehend, brothers and sisters, the sort of man that's calling after eternal glory. When it was yet deep night. You know, in the 88th Psalm, there's this remarkable expression. And many of these Psalms would have rang in our Lord's ears, would they not? knowing the psalmist, knowing that death was coming, sought every opportunity that he might pray to his God. The whole psalm is based upon the fact that one day he's going to die, but while he's alive, he's going to pray. Verse 12, Shall thy wonders be known in the dark, and thy righteous in the land of forgetfulness? But unto thee have I cried, O Yahweh, in the morning shall my prayer prevent thee. Prevent thee. You know that word means to confront. So what he's saying in this is using a human idiom. Not that it applies to God at all, but it's just a human thing that he might express his mind to God. That God in the morning, when heaven, the sun is more or less, comes up and morning arrives upon the earth, God in heaven is confronted with a prayer by a man that knows that he's going to a land of forgetfulness. And therefore wants to register his prayer as early as he possibly can in the morning. You imagine our Lord, brethren and sisters, he was going to go one day to the land of forgetfulness, only there for three days. 
but he knew nothing in the tomb. And while he had life and he had breath and he had strength, he was out there. And when the sun arose, God was confronted with a prayer. He never ever took time off. It was an incredible man, really. And you could, you know, you read these records, you're listening to these talk, you go home and night think to yourself, well, you know, that was a good section of our Lord's life. We're talking about one day. Now you think of that. Matthew said, rather Luke says he's in a desert place. But because the Greek word means loneliness, Mark says he went into a slavery place. And you know, it was an anomaly, brethren and sisters, that there were plenty of those places in Galilee because as the hills, especially from the west and from the east, built down into the lake in a very precipitous fashion, they do, are, they are laced with water courses in which there are these little winding ravines which present grand opportunities for loneliness in the midst of Galilee. There were plenty of those places and our Lord sought them on those occasions. He would wind his way out to these lonely little places that he might have some quietude that he might come to his God and pray to his God in loneliness and in solitude. But you know, brothers and sisters, Luke says, and the people sought him. Did you listen to this? You know, you think, you think of the word pictures that are being presented. We're, we're dealing with short records, but look at the word pictures that are being presented. Luke says the people sought him. The Greek has it, continuously were seeking him. They were gone everywhere. As soon as the sun came up, they were out everywhere looking for him. Where is he? Where is where's he gone? And they never gave up. They were continuously seeking him. But there was another group seeking him too. And it's Mark that tells us about that. You look at this group, brothers and sisters. Look at this. In Mark chapter 1 and verse 36. We read up verse 35. We read it before. Read it again for the connection. And in the morning, rising up in the deep night, before day, he went out and departed to a solitary place and there prayed. And Simon and they that were with him followed after him. Do you know what that word followed means in the Greek, brothers and sisters? Of course you don't, because you probably never looked it up. Neither did I until I looked it up. You know what it means? It means to hunt down. And do you know something else? Wherever that word is used, invariably, it is used in a derogatory sense. They were hunting him down. Who was? Simon. Simon had a little party. Whereas everybody was rushing around seeking him every which way, Simon was systematically hunting our Lord down with a little group of disciples. It was in Simon's house that the Lord had expended part of that energy. It would be Simon above all others who knew he never went to bed that night. And here he is hunting him down. And when he finds him, he says, listen, everyone's looking for you. You think of that. It's one thing for the people to be caring about looking for you, brethren and sisters. It's another thing for your friends to be hunting you down and saying, hey, it's about time you did this and did that and did something else. Everybody's looking for you. It was in that man's house, I believe, there was good evidence to believe that very house was our Lord's headquarters in Capernaum. Simon would have known he'd never gone to bed. And he was hunting him down. What for? To heal the people. Look, Luke says this. This is what Luke says. Verse 42. When it was day, he departed and went into a desert place and the people sought him and came unto him and stayed him. 
stayed in, to hold him down, is the Greek word. They come to hold him down, brethren and sisters. You stay here, we want you, you'll do us. This is a hospital like we've never had. Here's a doctor that could, you could, you'll be permanently resident in Capernaum. We can do with you. They were going to hold him down. And Simon was among those brethren and sisters that were hunting him down. But all the people wanted him for that reason. Didn't understand at all. He said in verse 43, I must preach. You see, miracles, brethren and sisters, were only for the present. People who had fevers by that woman and was cured of the fever, one day she died. The madman who had given me his common sense again and went about the business of life and were full of gratitude for our Lord, one day were carried into the grave and buried and corrupted. People with broken legs, people who were given their sight, the deaf that heard and the dumb that spake, are today dust. I must preach. He was not sent to perform miracles, brothers and sisters. He was sent to preach. He knew that, not simply because of the principle. He was told that in Isaiah 61. You look at this. A, a, common, a, 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 a common reference that we all have read before. He quoted to the synagogue at Nazareth. This very reference. What did he use to heal people? Whether or not the Spirit of God, well here it is, in Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord Yahweh is upon me because Yahweh hath anointed me to preach. There it is. I must preach. So they would have said, Lord, we need your Spirit. What Spirit? We need the Spirit that God has given you. Yes, but God didn't give it to me for that. He gave it to me that I might preach good tidings unto me. And that I might heal, not physical ill, but to bind up the brokenhearted. To bind up the brokenhearted. He was to heal spiritually. I must preach. It was the Apostle Paul who joined our Lord when he said this, The Lord sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. We are not sent, brethren and sisters, to do anything more than to tell people what's, what's necessary for eternal life, not what's a band-aid for this life. And that was what the Lord was doing. Miracles in themselves were fine. They illustrated God's power to save. They surely did. But looked at it from the people's viewpoint, they were band-aids. I come to preach, he said. And that's what Isaiah had said. Yahweh has anointed me. He poured the Spirit on him, brethren and sisters. What for? To perform miracles? No, to preach. And the miracles themselves were preaching because they were telling people of that glorious day when the deaf shall hear and the blind shall see and the lame man shall leap of the heart. That's what they were doing. They were preaching. They were not given for the mere purpose of making people well. And so Luke concludes like this. And I told you we're going to come a full circle. Here it comes. Luke concludes in verse 44, and he preached in the synagogues of Galilee. We perhaps should have read Mark's record to start with, I think, because Mark concludes a bit different. He just adds one little significant phrase. And it's characteristic of Mark to do this. Verse 39. It says, the same as Luke with, with, with a little bit of an addition. 
And he preached in their synagogues throughout all Galilee and cast out devils. See the point that Mark is making, brethren and sisters? If the Lord was finding all around him people ill in body, when he went into synagogues, that's where he found the demons. And I believe that it would have, would, have, would have been providential that God would have foreseen that as he went from synagogue to synagogue there would always be, not perhaps always, but very often there would be in that meeting a madman. He preached in their synagogues and cast out demons. That's where the madness was. And until that madness had got out of that place where the teaching emanated, brethren and sisters, so the illnesses would continue among the people. And the same is true today. We will have no madness up here. Despite the fact that some people think, oh, I might be mad. But we will not have madness here. When madness takes over this platform, brethren and sisters, we will have sickness out there. And the great sickness that today pervades many of our ecclesias in the brotherhood, and don't tell me it's not there, that, I, that I've seen with my eyes that the illness that pervades, the illness of ignorance and apathy, is because up here there's madness. And not just simply madness in that sense, brothers and sisters, but when the ecclesias give everyone a go, when amateurs are talking from the word of God to give them a try, to help them improve, and the ecclesias suffers, and that's exactly what happened here. He preached in all their synagogues and cast out devils. And the Lord was trying to teach that nation to lift the standard of teaching, to get God's word expounded among the people. And there might be some moral improvement of which all those sicknesses out there were emblematic and which he spent so much energy in trying to overcome for them. And in the end, brethren and sisters, through strong crying unto God and with tears, prayer and fasting, he confronted the very root cause of all those sicknesses. He went to the cross, and in every sense of the word, he took upon himself all our iniquities and all our sins forevermore. And when he comes, because of that intellectual greatness of our Lord, we, brothers and sisters, will be made bodily sound and enter into eternal glory.